Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Today we are diving into the mysteries of human behavior, the mysteries of self-sabotage, the mysteries of why we say we want one thing and then we act in completely contradictory ways. And we're looking at it from the perspective of health professionals, doctors, nurses, dietitians, coaches, people whose job it is to help their patients and clients change, especially in lifestyle medicine, where we can't just give them a pill or cut them open. But we have to frame messages to maximize the odds of desired behaviors. And unfortunately, most medical professionals have been trained to communicate in exactly the wrong way, the opposite way, ways that reduce patient self-efficacy. We challenge their autonomy. We undermine confidence in their competence. And even when we don't do those things, we don't understand how to use information, facts, questioning to get people to align their behaviors with their values, goals and priorities. And on today's podcast, you will discover how to talk to people so that they will not only listen, but adopt positive new behaviors and maintain them in the face of all this ongoing temptation. My guest is Dr. Mark Ferris, and he, th he thinks a lot about why people do what they do. He began his career as an athletic and fitness trainer, and like many of us, he assumed he could get his clients to do the right thing just by telling them clearly and accurately what to do. And he quickly discovered that people interpret information and instructions in ways that seem deeply confusing and often irrational. Even just like telling someone, OK, this is your body fat percentage from a DEXA scan could produce vastly different and highly irrational responses from people. I mean, hey, it's just a fact. Once we know the facts, we can do something about it, right? Well, it turns out that the way we deliver the facts and frame the facts can have a huge impact on how people interpret them and what they do about them. So Mark dove into the science, exploring the intersection of self-image, values, goals, motivations, and their relation to chosen behaviors. And in particular, being from Texas, he was curious about the connection between religiousness, religiosity, specifically the belief that the body is like a temple and it was a divine gift to its inhabitant. What's the relationship between having that belief and actually acting on it, actually eating right, exercising, not smoking, not drinking to excess, and even things like getting piercings and tattoos. In what ways did this belief impact health choices, lifestyle decisions and behaviors? In our conversation, we explore a lot of things that I was unclear about or hadn't heard about. We explore how different emotions can lead to action or inaction. And Mark helped me understand the positive differences between guilt and shame. And he clarified some of my sloppy thinking about positive and negative emotions. Before we get to the conversation, one quick important announcement. The Wellstart Coach Training Academy rides again starting September 21st, 2020. We're doing another 13 week run of the program. And if you are interested in becoming a health coach, so if you listen to this podcast today and you're like, this is really cool, that might be a clue that you should take this coach training because we get into a lot of hands-on, specific, actionable ways to talk to people to bring out their best. To uh, and it's science-based. So if you're interested, check out wellstartcoach.com. You can see some testimonials. You can see some sample 
material from that program. It is fully guaranteed. Go through the whole thing. If you decide it wasn't worth it, you will get a cheerful refund. And we've taken about 85 people through the program so far. And they're out there in the world making a difference. Some of them are healthcare professionals like doctors, nurses, dietitians, osteopaths, all that sort of thing. Some are health coaches looking to up their skill level, up their game. And some are just ordinary citizens who want to rep for a healthy plant based lifestyle and would like tools for helping the people around them get on board and stay on board. So again, wellstartcoach.com to read more about it and to schedule an interview with me to see if it would be a good fit. All right, let's get to it without further ado. Dr. Mark Ferris, welcome to Plant Yourself. Thank you. It's so great to be with you this morning. Yeah, so I've been reading some of your your papers. I've been uh, consuming tidbits on your website, fitnesspudding.com. And we're in sort of this, the same field. We're both interested in how to help people adopt healthy behaviors and how to help professionals convince them to adopt those healthy behaviors. So um, there's not that many of us. Tell, tell us a little bit about like your, your journey to this. Yeah, so um, you're, you're right. It, it, there, there seems to be, particularly in the field of, you know, it seems like there's a lot of people looking at how, how in the world do you help people change? Um, but we find, and what intrigued me early on was that it didn't seem as if there was as much success um, with that at this time. For me, it was largely built around early on. Um, I was extremely interested in the the exercise fitness world. I had a fleeting career in the fitness industry, um, and I largely transitioned from working with athletes and fitness models at, at early stages to uh, particularly women who would come and ask me. Uh, who were not fitness models, but wanted to look like fitness models. So oddly enough, that's where it started. And, and what I found was that the just do it mentality that I talk about often just did not fit with these these women and some men as well. It was it was just more complicated than that. And what I ended up finding was I found a passion for that. I, I, I became intrigued with the difficulties um, how, how they could undermine their own belief in themselves, how they could undermine their own behavior, either knowingly or unknowingly. And at that time, I didn't really know what was going on. I, I could just sense that there, it was something different and, and, a, and bigger and more complicated. And because I became enthused with that, uh, I, I decided to go back and get my master's degree in exercise physiology. And I thought at first, if I just know more about mm. what's going on with the body, because um, even then I was curious about these myths, right? So one personal trainer would say, do this. And then another personal trainer would say, no, do this. And the same thing with the diet world. Like, well, wh who, who's right and how are they right? And where are they getting these answers? And all that was seemed like it was confusing people. And so I'm, I, I decided I'm going to go and I'm going to learn everything I need to know to tell people what to do, what's right, what's wrong, as if I, I guess naive enough to think it was going to be clear cut. Uh -huh. uh, it was during that process, however, that I, I discovered that largely I, I did know what to tell people. I just didn't know how to get them to do it. And so then I pursued a Ph.D. on paper. It's behavioral health, but the expertise in particular is behavioral medicine. 
And so it allowed me to balance both the physiological and the psychological, looking at not only what are the physiological determinants for uh, disease, disability, death, but also what are the psychological parameters, uh, particularly at the individual or interpersonal level that would implicate or determine increase or lower risk. So why do some people eat healthy? Why do some people not? Why do some people not even want to eat more fruits and vegetables? Why do some people want to? And that, that during my PhD, I started doing research uh, as a part of my um, graduate assistantship at the University of Texas at Austin, where we did weight loss programming and we did fitness testing for the public. And so men and women would come in. And at that time, I was doing a ton of DEXA scans. And for those who are not familiar, it's a, a, the gold standard for body composition. It's a large scan. It's expensive. It takes about six, seven minutes. And it gives you um, the, the pounds of, of, of muscle on the body, the pounds of fat on the body, the percent of the body that's fat, the bone mineral density of the skeleton. And my job was largely to relay that information in sort of a clinical style format. Mm. Um, but I quickly found that that information was not benign. In, in other words, you, you tell somebody that their blank percent body fat, 54% of their body, or there's this many pounds of fat uh, on their body. And I found that, that that fat aspect, particularly more so than just even weight, um, w- would produce an array of emotional, motivational, and behavioral responses. And so um, to kind of summarize the next decade of my research was utilizing these triggers or these sparks, uh, such as a DEXA scan or, or some sort of uh, clinical reading and understanding and develop a new theoretical understanding uh, on those responses and how we could potentially intervene uh, to guide people to not only increase motivation to change, because many people don't want to change despite that, which affects our clinical, right? The expectation of, hey, I'll just tell them that they have prediabetes and they'll change, right? Or that they're in this overweight or obese classification and they'll change. And then we as practitioners might get frustrated because they don't. And so, um, yeah, so I spent a lot of time there and now I've moved into uh, two two main areas research-wise. One of the things that we end up finding uh, was that um, there are particular values that people hold. And uh, here in Texas, one that we hold and affects health behavior is, is their religious viewpoints. And so uh, most of my research now is di- diving specifically in into the religion and health connection, particularly health behavior, and how those behaviors become internalized into one's religious values and uh, system uh, and paradigm, and also how do we utilize theory and the concepts that you and I know, and how do we package that in a way, so to speak, or educate physicians and healthcare providers and personal trainers, and even those in public and uh, community health or, or cooperative extension in the counties, how do we equip them to then be able to apply what we do know in the science um, to their particular needs, programs, uh, et cetera? Right. Yeah, there's a bunch to unpack there. One, one thought is, um, you know, when you just say it seems like if you say if there's a number like 54 percent body fat, that there's only one way to say it. There's it's a number. It's objective. 
And yet we know from lots of studies that if you tell someone there's a 99% chance that you'll survive the operation or there's a 1% chance that you'll die during the operation, that people take that in very, very differently, even though to, you know, uh, homo econo economicus, rational man, they would be this, the exact same thing. What, what did you notice before you knew theory? What did, like what were you playing with when you were um, delivering those numbers? Yeah, so the first thing I noticed was the the emotional response. And so being a younger guy and, and these were middle age or older women, largely, um, I, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know should I hug them? Should I like, could I do that? Should I don't I just didn't know, to be honest. Um, my general mentality is to try to think through as many ways as possible to deliver the information that it reduces negative emotional responses. And so that's just the way I was wired. So my first step uh, in doing this was how do I deliver this to ease the tension? And I would rack my brain. And what we'd have to do is once we got the data, I would go to another computer and analyze that. So there was a little break between the scan where they didn't know any of this information I was creating some reports and then bringing those reports out to them and we would discuss that entire time I was trying with each individual trying to figure out um, how to deliver it to just ease the tension of it because I'd seen so many people respond so negatively um, and so that that was it that was largely yeah. it I didn't know what yeah. what theory to tap into what concept it was just trying to ease the tension so we could have a conversation about what to do next. If they were so upset or so angry, um, then we couldn't have a conversation about how to move forward. Right. Mm. Um, so do you so think, yeah, that, that was the, yeah. the first shot. Do you think like I'm thinking about myself um, when I was that age and like I think I would have tried to reduce upset, not for their sake, but for mine. Mm. Right. Like to do. Yeah. Do, yeah. You know, that, like, yeah, I definitely found that, too. So a, a part of, you know, there, there's just the simple notion of like the age difference, for example, right, between me and, and these largely women. Plus, there was um, the gender difference, right? There was here I was. I've never dealt with overweight obesity in my own life, but they have. And so there was that disconnect. Um, and so it created this uh definitely some concerns in my own mind of and maybe I was doing some things to ease that with myself. Um, but I've also been OK with delivering negative information in the past. Mm. Um, but it was more about I think for me, it was more about am I doing it in a way that's going to help them versus do it in a way that's going to make it detrimental. And it was that same. I guess at that time, distrust in my own abilities that then that then encouraged me to go learn more mm -hmm. and to learn as many theories as I possibly could to try to explain all of this as best as I could because of how uncomfortable I was and how yeah. just ignorant I was in, in what I was doing. Yeah. So let's let's fast forward to all the research that you've done. Um, there are still debates about, you know, whether heaven or hell is a better motivation. I've oh. se I've seen that 
you know, that telling somebody really bad news can get them to stop what they're doing and interest them in changing direction. I found that the negative doesn't work at all to get people to 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 move forward on the positive path. What is what does the research say as far as um, as far as your reading of it in terms of how to how to deploy negative consequences versus positive potential positive outcomes? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a great point. Um, so generally speaking, we know that uh, message framing is important. And if it's something that's more approach oriented or if it's something more avoidant oriented, uh, we know there are personality types, uh, these orientations that are more approach or avoidant. Some people will just respond better to the negative information versus the positive style of information. But you hit on a good point that just because they respond early on doesn't mean that that allows them to be maintained or that behavior to be maintained. And if so, we have to start considering is, uh, as you know, how healthy is that for a person to exist in this sort of negatively framed mentality over time? So self-determination theory, for example, talks about uh, doing a behavior for being other determined that the coercion comes from somebody else. And so in a short term situation, you know, if I don't want to go to the gym today, but uh, my workout buddy's waiting on me and I go because they're there and um, I'm glad I went, but I wouldn't want to exist that way day in and day out. And so, as you know, we try to transition people to more of a self-determined. Uh, but at the same time, that self-determined could be from uh, shame, avoidance of shame. Uh, research has been showing um particularly in the intention behavior gap, that anticipated regret can be quite powerful in helping people connect intention uh, to behavior. We know of self-conscious emotions, uh, that uh, guilt, for example, um, that I'm upset because the, I didn't make the gym behavior happen yesterday, for, uh, for example, that, that is uh, positively correlated with physical activity. Uh, shame, however, is not. It's negatively correlated. And so it's it's not uh, when I read the research, I find that the behavior can dictate whether it should be positively, negatively framed. Uh, I find that the research seems to sing in this negative and living a behavior that is being coerced by others. My doctor's making me do it. My so and so is making me do it. The society's making me do it. Just doesn't help in the long term that it has to be more self-determined in nature, uh, and it can have a negative connotation. Uh, it can be of guilt, but we try to avoid shame. When I pass fast food up when I want it, I may not feel positive in that. Um, and so what we've also found with other self-regulatory abilities, the ability to regulate emotions can be extremely helpful uh, as well. And that's probably one reason we find uh, so much work now being done in mindfulness and being non-judgmental in the way we interpret these negative situations that we face. Mm. So something you said sounds to me like it could be a paradox so that we want to be self-determined rather than other determined. I think one of the papers you wrote about, like basically the the me that I am, the aspirational, the ideal me and the ought me yeah. that I feel you know, mm -hmm. that sort of 
imposed externally that I may have, um, you know, interjected into myself. But so if you're saying it's better to be sort of self-determined than other determined, why on earth would we would would guilt be better than shame? Because guilt is sort of as, as I understand it, it's about failing others, whereas shame is failing yourself. Yeah, it's a it's good. So a lot of the discussion and discord between interpretations of guilt and shame that I've found has just been in the way people operationalize it. Um, and so when if um, those listening look into what are called self-conscious emotions and you look at guilt there, guilt is directed at the behavior. So the 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 regret or the upset nature comes from I didn't do a behavior. It's not about me. I'm not a bad person per mm-hmm. se. It's just I'm upset that I didn't do the behavior. And so, okay. And it, it allows for um, opportunity then to uh, move on past that. It's like in golf. I hit a bad shot. I'm not necessarily a bad golfer. It was just a bad shot. Now so, I can move yeah. on to the next so gu- shot. So guilt has a sort of a growth component built into it, right? The, the it, purpose it definitely of- can. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, got it. Uh, sh- shame, shame, however, and I've heard people say guilt, but they're really talking about shame. Uh, but but again, it's all about how it's operationalized. Shame uh, tends to be negative correlated, at least uh, hypothetically, is because um, we get to more of what you're saying. It's like we it, it affects self-esteem. It affects self-concept. I start seeing myself as a bad person or as a less of a person because I didn't do A, B, or C. Um, and once you start uh, hitting it at self-concept and self-esteem and view of self, then there's a whole list of things, uh, lack of confidence, poor outcome, expectations, et cetera, that can flow um, from that. And when you mentioned social earlier, you know, folks out there like Mark Leary that describe self-esteem as more of a socially driven concept and that's low self-esteem is, I think he calls it a sociometer uh, in that when I have low self-esteem, that that is likely a result of lack of uh, attention, support, inclusion from social settings, and it might encourage me to do something to help rectify that. So it is complicated, and um, that that is one of the best connections I've seen with the social aspect in with our own view of self. Hmm. Wow, head, head spinning a little bit there. Um, can you you said you use the, the phrase self-conscious emotions. Can you explain what those are? Yeah, so it's it's emotions that are a result of this um, in, internal review process of self, of, of one's behavior and the outcome of behaviors. Um, this it, it ties into um, the, the, the world of emotional regulation and self-regulatory abilities, and even some of the cognitive behavioral therapy that would then try to train our abilities to, to do that, as well as the mindfulness, which takes another angle uh, on, on the idea of emotional regulation. Got it. So are there positive self-conscious emotions? Uh, there, there are. So uh, another aspect of this that I didn't mention is uh, there are several people that have uh, tried their best to organize emotions into like an approach or an avoidant category. And the way we define positive is where it gets tricky, right? So I might say, uh, if we think positive emotions, we might think happiness or, or joy or eagerness. And we might think negative emotions such as uh, anger or frustration or sadness, depression. 
But if you organize it, for example, in approach avoidance, anger and frustration are well-documented approach um, emotions. So they tend to be correlated with getting out and doing something and approaching an end goal. Not, not necessarily the, the right end goal or the right behavior choice when we're angry or frustrated, but the motivation tends to be quite high. So it could be arguable, right, that anger and frustration are actually positive mm. in the nature that they impact behavior, but negative in the way that we would typically classify them. And so that's what makes this a little bit complicated. And when, when I teach physicians and other healthcare providers, one thing we talk about is just because a patient is frustrated or angry, that's that might be a good thing for that moment, right? Because they're going to be motivated to do something. So maybe you switch over to now I'm going to teach you what to do with that. What are your next steps? If you leave them alone, then they could go and make their health worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could go and do a fad diet or supplement or, or disordered eating with that frustration and with that anger. So we talk a lot about just kind of changing the way we view the emotions uh, instead of trying to classify, uh, classify them as positive, negative, but seeing them in the light of how, one, they're being interpreted. So that's the self-conscious part by the patient or the individual client. And then also how that impacts motivation and behavior choices as the response. Hmm. Some of that sounds very Buddhist in terms of taking out the the assessment of, oh, this is a pot like when I I sort of sloppily asked you about positive or negative emotions. And in my mind, I was thinking my definition that was emotions that Mm -hmm. I like to keep and emotions that I want to get rid of. (laughs) But as I'm thinking about it, like I can really get off on anger. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah, of, of course. And and this is where you have differing views. Right. So, yeah, you could definitely have a, uh, a Buddhist type view of this. You could have a very um, true mindfulness, non-judgmental. Uh, you could also come from the fact of um, I, I tend to fall on. I like emotions and I like that. that to me, emotions in life is about the experience. And um, so it, it depends on the view, and I think there are some that try to reduce the emotional response. There are others who might want to try to harness that emotional response, and there are other ones who, who just don't let it impact the way you view yourself, right? So the classic example of, hey, I'm angry right now. I'm not an angry person. I'm just angry, and then that may change the way that I view the situation, I view myself, and then open up some um, opportunities for me to move forward. So it's, it's definitely more complex. Uh, when I was trying to even assess emotions over the years in my research, it's, it's even harder, it seems like, to assess it uh, and, and, and research and then try to apply it to some application. And I'll be honest, I got to the point where I was like, I just I'm not going to assess it anymore because I can't get my mind uh-huh. around emotions, even though they're so important and there's no way to escape that. It's just some people just respond better. Like you said, if you're angry, you may. That may be what you need. Uh, we see that in sports psychology, too. Some people just thrive. Uh, they play better when they're frustrated. Um, and when you're talking about a, a, a physical um, task like a golf swing, the emotional state can have physiological outcomes. So now my swing, my putt is shakier because when I'm angry or the other person, it's shakier when they're nervous or, you know, so it's like. Mm-hmm. It's just complicated, but it's it's it, it's extremely fascinating, and um, it is a, a an important part of behavior change. That even though we don't understand it, we still need to recognize it. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, my head is spinning a little bit just because 
there's a lot of concepts that, you know, and I'm, and I'm uh, processing this as a health coach, thinking like, yeah. you know, very, yeah. very much like um, the work that T. Colin Campbell did around holism versus reductionism. Like we know that nutrients are important, but it's too complicated to surf them. So we're going to or, or to, you know, to dive into them. So we're just going to surf and trust certain intrinsic processes. And I'm just thinking about as a you know, as a health coach, I want to be very conscious of what's going on emotionally, cognitively in the person that I'm helping. And like I'm, I'm getting a little bit dizzy trying to apply all these um, new layers of distinction that I hadn't yeah. necessarily thought about before. Is is there a I mean, is the advice the same, like just just sort of stay with it? Or am I thinking, you know, are there are there things that these um, understandings allow us to do better? Yeah, it's 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 so great. And the analogy with the reductionism holism from a dietary standpoint, it, that's a that's a great comparison. Um, I just wish the behavioral prescription was as simple as, hey, eat this diet. Uh, don't worry about the nutrients. Right. I, and early in my career, I kind of wanted that. Right. I kind of wanted to be the guy that invented a new theory. And when students read about it in the textbook, it was my name. And if you mm -hmm. apply this theory then it fixes the world's problems and everybody uh, what I'd, I'd probably be filthy rich if I could do that. And uh, I really wanted that. And I was seeking that. But to your to your point that you just made uh, related to your question over the years, I'll tell you how I've progressed. Um, the, the first issue I started having um, year, years ago, actually during my doctoral training was as I was learning the theories, and then I was looking at the data, for example, of uh, poor diet inactivity, particularly in chronic disease risk. And then uh, I was like, so we have all these theories. Then why do we still have chronic disease? If the theories work, is it the fact that are we not applying them correctly? And talking about health coaching, right? Wellness coaching is like, am I not applying it right? And, and you know very well it's worked in some people. It hasn't worked in others. And we're still trying to get our mind around it. But or is it the fact that we, there's new theories out there that we haven't recognized? Or the point you made, is there some deeper dives into things? So fast forward to where I am largely today, and this might change, but um, I, I've not given up complete hope that I'll come up with the, the one program that will solve the world's problems. However, um, I have found success, at least in educating healthcare providers and coaches and um, personal trainers, et cetera, in building out what is simple analogy is just building out their toolkit. And um, we were talking before we started this about doing some work around the house or I just replaced an alternator in my car not too long ago. And I didn't have the right, I had the right socket size. I needed 13 millimeter and I had that, but I couldn't get to the, the nut because it was really deep in the, uh -huh. the engine. You need the deep, so I had to go the deep well socket. I went out, bought me the long, skinny, just perfect fit to be able to get to that. So I found that that situation made me learn a new, in our, our kind of behavioral uh, analogy here, that situation, that patient, that client made me need to go learn a new skill to gather a new mm -hmm. tool. I might not need that again. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm big now on 
yeah, you, you, if you're a physician or your health coach or your personal trainer, continue to grow in knowing those things. One thing that's been frustrating me a little bit, and um, one reason I'm starting a, a website called changemaintain.com, is I just was not able to find as many resources for this sort of, to gather a new tool. Like to be able to go somewhere and say, hey, I need that deep socket mm. extender. I need that. I need to go find that. Um, where do I get that? And so uh, that's one of my new frustrations that I'm trying to rectify is how do we get that sort of information out to people in a, in a cheap, entertaining way that they'll want to go watch it and, and, mm. and learn what they need to learn. Mm. See, I, I, I um, have a sort of opposite frustration, and I, mm. I think they will dovetail nicely, which is that, you know, I've been in the coaching world for many years and sort of coaching became really faddish in the late 90s. And a lot of the coach training programs threw every possible technique at you. And it felt mm -hmm. like you needed, you know, an encyclopedia. And I literally remember yeah. getting a PDF of like 400 different exercises that you could do. Mm. And like, I think, you, you know, you add to your tools in practice, not in not in the learning phase. And like yeah. I have several books on, on health coaching and they're just to me, they're just overwhelming. And because mm -hmm. because they don't have a, a foundation in the fundamentals, like what are yeah. the fundamentals of, of behavior change? And you you um, co-authored a paper. I think it was presented at Naples at ACLM in 2016. And I love that you you relied on the sort of the, the real basic theoretical underpinnings of like yeah. the three human motivations, the six human mm -hmm. needs. I think we, you know, they, like that tool wouldn't have done you any good. That that deep well, 13 millimeters um, socket right? wouldn't have done you any good if you didn't already have a fundamental understanding of, you know, nuts turn counterclockwise to get loose and it holds things in place. So yeah, right. What, what as as you teach people, what are the very, very basic things you teach providers and, and consumers of health information to help them self-regulate this complexity? Well, yeah, it's a uh, it's a good question. And your, your point to uh, kind of the, the fire hose type thing and um, getting a lot of information, a lot of theories, but not having. And I think you made a good point. It's you're in practice and then you go search for that. You know, it's like somebody asks you a question, you know, they send you an email and I get emails all the time about something. I'm like, Ugh. so then I got to go look it up. Right. It gives me a little time to figure before I respond to the email. Uh, and maybe I responded and they just think I had that off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, but I needed to go look for it then. So I needed the ability to go look for it and find it and so at a basic level, when I teach graduate students and medical students, for example, it is you're right on it. To me, it is about these basic concepts that we've known for decades and decades, for example, that are uh, prominent. Now, the second layer, though, is how do I Well, two two layers? One is if I look at the research on these concepts and these theories, um, is it does it have an effect, right? And what is that effect? So what I found also that was an early frustration with me in learning all this, as, as you have as well, is 
I would hear about concept X, whatever that was, and I would go look at the research on that concept's either relationship or prediction of or um, impact on, let's say, fruit and vegetable consumption. And it was a correlation of 0.2, right? So for those who know, that's it, it was statistically significant, right? So we're confident that it's 0.2. But 0.2 out of 0 to 1, that's just, it's not a very strong correlation. Or um, it impacted fruit and vegetable intake by 0.3 servings, which is kind of like the median change of, of fruit and vegetable consumption. And the joke I make, that's like a bite of a banana, right? So... Um, I apply this concept or this theory, but it's only going to improve on average 0.3 servings per day. And in Texas, our median intake in adults is about 1.5 servings per day. So trying to get them to 7, 10, 13. Um, So I think that is one aspect. But the second aspect at a basic, basic level um, is how do you find research on these areas? How do you read them? How do you understand it? How do you assimilate it? And then how does that impact your coaching or your patient client uh, provider interaction. Uh, but that that's where I've now started basic theoretical concepts and then basic research methods, to be honest with you. Years ago, I gave a talk. It might have been 2000 and it was at another American College of Lifestyle Medicine um, meeting conference. And I was given the topic on um, kind of evidence based practice uh, and applying theory, psychological theory. And a lot of people were responsive, positively responsive, responsive to just knowing the basics. They're like, I wish I would have gotten these basics sooner. Mm. But also I got a lot of uh, positive feedback from, I didn't even know Google Scholar existed, for example. Or I just give them little tips of how to ease the search and make it faster. Start with review articles. Start at 2020 and work backwards. And um, click on at, at PubMed.com. Click on the little... Uh, review article tab under the advanced search. And uh, I got a really strong response from that. And so since then, I've been really emphasizing those basics as well. Mm. So um, we're in an era now of the the cusp, possibly of personalized medicine. Mm. So we're in the, you know, and, and most of the lifestyle medicine research we've done around diet is very general. It's very broad. It's, you know, because it's largely epidemiological. We don't have tons of people signing up for prospective randomized clinical trials to eat tofu and seitan. Um, but in a lot of medicine, it's like, OK, this is your genotype. So this is the drug for you or this is your age and your, you know, do we have anything like that around the pike in behavioral medicine? You know, you were saying like, well, for whom like, can we can we give a blood test and find out who responds better to approach, who responds better to avoidance, who responds better to going whole hog, who responds better to tiny steps? Um, yeah, I don't know about a around the corner. My, my suspect is yes, because if you really look back at, at psychology and particularly the application of psychological concepts or theories on health behavior, we've had that sort of precision behavior idea. Uh, and maybe how are you and I can coin, coin that now. Uh, but the so take, for example, personality assessments uh, and the, the big five and assessing that and adjusting prescription based on that assessment. Um, somebody who's more open or 
uh, extrovert, maybe I treat them different than an introvert. And can you um, describe the big five to folks who are unfamiliar? Yeah, so the, the big five is an assessment of personality traits. Um, and it gets into, relates to what's called explanatory style. And so how it relates to personality. So how do we uh, receive and explain the world around us? <clears throat> And so you, you, the, uh, those who go look that up, you'll be familiar with several of them. Extroversion, introvert would be one. You have optimism and pessimism on the explanatory style. And so how that affects behavior, for example. Um, so optimists and pessimists, in a general sense, um, if we had to kind of break those apart, would explain a positive and negative event differently. So uh, I'll use golf as another example. If I hit a putt and I miss and I'm a pessimist, then I say, well, of course I miss. I always miss. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like I just if I'm an optimist, then I say, well, it was the sun got in my eyes or the it was the barometric pressure. It was anything but me and my skill. Mm -hmm. um, if I make the putt and I'm a pessimist, I say, oh, it must have been something else. It was luck. But if I make the putt and I'm an optimist, now I'm like, yeah, because I'm awesome. Of course I made it, right? So the understanding someone's personality traits, for example, understanding their explanatory style in this, this simple optimist-pessimist example, I can then uh, pr prescribe differently. There's also areas of executive function, uh, which we really haven't clamped down on per se and how to assess that clinically in an easy way to then adjust. But uh, one one example would be when, when I was a personal trainer many, many years ago in my early 20s, uh, we had food logs, right? And it was these very complex food logs. That's all I knew. But I would give them to clients and a very small percentage would do them. It's like my – and we talk about type A personalities and things like, like the ones who like detail and all that. They did fine with them. But so many people never even did them. Mm. And I'm like, I got to have it because I got to be able to see what you're eating and make some adjustments, this and that. So I got so frustrated, I just I actually went on the Internet and I took pictures of uh, like this little comic picture of a, a, a Coca-Cola Coca can or soda can, <clears throat> excuse me, and I put several in a row. And then I had down here, I had a restaurant image and I put several of those. I had fast food images and had several of those. <clears throat> and I gave it to them. And I said, all I want you to do is every time you eat a, drink a soda or you eat at a restaurant, you eat fast food or you have a vegetable, I just want you to circle the picture, hmm. each one. And they and so when I get back, then I could just see overall, right? And that's really what I need is like, you drank 15 sodas this week, right? So clearly when you got to work toward, I didn't need calories. I didn't need macronutrients. I didn't need, and so <clears throat> what I was really getting at now, looking back on that, was their, their self-regulation, our, our frontal lobe's ability to regulate behavior, delay gratification, plan, that, that is uh, hypothesized, hypothesized to be made up of what we call executive functions, uh, attention inhibition, working memory, uh, planning, um, and, and, and kind of formulating uh, things. Uh, delaying gratification would be made up of that as well. So the thought is if somebody's not really good at planning and they're poor in that executive function, one aspect is maybe we should train that executive function. And that's been looked at, for example, in cancer survivors. Uh, and there are apps that do that. Um, but also there's this idea of maybe I should manipulate my prescription based on if they're not good at planning, I'm not going to give them this real complex planning task, right? 
So in a way, you have things like that, personality, explanatory style. Um, uh, oh, we talked approach avoidance earlier. I did a study years ago uh, where we brought in um, women to our lab and we hooked them up to, to measure brain activity Wait, you, uh, in so my brain you, behavior lab. You stuttered for a second there. Can you just repeat? You, we brought in women? Oh, sorry. So we, we brought in undergraduate women into our lab for a study where we uh, that we hooked them up to EEG. So we put the cap on them to measure brain activity. And so there's this really phenomenal line of research that looks at um, a, what they call afrontal symmetry of, of the brain. And so the general argument is, and some would, um, you know, th there's clearly discussion on this, but generally, if the left frontal lobe activity is more, is higher than the right, then that person is more approach oriented in that situation. If the right frontal lobe is more active than the left, creating an asymmetry, then they're more avoidant. So what we ended up finding was in this study, we brought the women in, we hooked them up, and we did their body weight and composition analysis, and we gave them that information, and they sat in the room by themselves with the EEG cap on and looked at that data, uh, their information, this many pounds, this percent body fat, this many pounds, just very simple uh, clinical type data. What we ended up finding is that um, the majority, about 70% were approached, like I'm gonna go fix this. Uh, there was a minority, about 30%, that were more avoidant as registered by this afrontal symmetry that I just described. We also looked at emotional responses and we looked at uh, their comfort food consumption the following week, which was one of our outcomes because we thought this is an emotional experience. Our previous research has shown that. So let's look at the effect. One of my students actually came up with the idea of what if getting your information to try to help you made things worse, right? What so if, you told you told them you are a pro approach, you are avoidant. We did not tell them. We measured it subconsciously okay. through their brain activity. Okay, yeah. gotcha. And uh, what ended up happening was the the majority who were more approach oriented, there was no change in their comfort food consumption the following week. The thirty or so percent who were avoidant. Uh, had a four-time increase in their comfort food consumption uh, compared to the week prior to this this test. Interestingly, we measured their emotional response to the information, and that was exactly the same. And so uh, the movies might try to tell us that, you know, the, there's a breakup, a relationship breakup, and we eat ice cream and try to get the comfort food to deal with the emotion, and that's clearly there and the positive affect that can come from that. However, we showed that, and others have with other situations, we just showed it with health information, that it's not just emotion, but it's this interaction with, are you responding subconsciously um, with, with an approach or, or, or avoidant-oriented mentality? So what I'm getting at is that, that, I think, could fall into this notion of precision behavior, where you can assess these things up front. Uh, my guess is there could also be avenues in the future, as you mentioned, with genetics and other things. Uh, I haven't dealt much with that, but that's that's extremely mm -hmm. fascinating. So this brings up two things for me. Um, what one is? Um, what is it? <laughs> I, I remember the second one. The first one. Was, um, oh, that we. It makes me feel like 
we really don't know what we're doing a lot of the time when we're doing things that we think are obviously helping. So I'll, I'll give you an example. So I've led groups of people to improve their health, you know, 12 week courses, year long courses. And at one point, a bunch of us were going to meet at a health event, like a four day, you know, eat right, get lectured by doctors, love each mm -hmm. other, go for runs. Every, you know, a bunch of us were really excited. We we're going to meet for the first time because it was a digital program. We met, we were, you know, like, a long lost family, like every only positive things. The following week, when we got on the call, a bunch of people were sheepishly talking about how they inexplicably, after all this inspiration, had like totally gone off their diets and were down in the dumps. And like, I don't know exactly how that might have worked or for whom it might have worked, but it, it brought to mind like the people who organized this event didn't have any intention of of causing any sort of blowback or or unintended consequences. Yeah, right. And yet it happened and it happened at a level that to me looked statistically significant, even though I didn't, you know, run numbers mm -hmm. on it. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And what it makes me think of is that that brings up a frustration for a lot of practitioners. And I've seen this over the years is and now with the value based models, for example, value-based medicine where you have a lot of healthcare providers that exist in a system that they're deemed or rewarded based on behavioral outcomes and clinical outcomes of their patient population. And they're really trying. They really are. They really care. And they are, um, I just talked, had a conversation with a friend of mine who is an elite sports psychologist. And he was working with a young golfer, a uh, talented golfer. And He's like, I just, I'm, I'm trying. I just don't know. It's like everything I say just seems to make it worse, even though I'm doing it from a heart and I really care. And um, it, it's, it's hard on a lot of, of individuals. However, I, I don't recommend that that we lose sight of the relational component. Um, there's a lot to be said with that, um, and that how we go about developing relationships with our patients and clients is is huge particularly because the, the social support that comes from that, uh, one of the difficulties when you leave an event, right, from a conference to a retreat to um, e even one visit with the coach, and then they, they engage. And we saw this with clinical weight loss where um, they come in in the clinical setting, they were on meal replacements, and they were with a group, and everything was good, right? Everything had a positive vibe, and they were working through stuff. And but then when they had to go shop for themselves and they had to get back into the real world and they were losing some of that support and um, it, it just gets more difficult. And the way that we as people, as humans, can interpret that, these highs and lows, uh, if somebody interprets that in a way that the, the positive experience was like it doesn't do much for their confidence. And if anything, it lowers confidence. We, we know that... Mm. Uh, one, one way to build confidence, for example, is looking at um, vicarious experience and looking how other people have been successful. But also with mastery experience, the phrase I use often, um, if I believe I can, I might. If I believe I can't, I probably won't. Mm -hmm. And so if mastery experience is about these challenging yet attainable tasks, uh, if they're too challenging, then I lose confidence, perhaps. If they're too easy, then I don't gain confidence. And so if I go to a, a conference where everything is real or retreat, everything's real positive, you can do this, go, 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 
you're capable, you're capable, and then I go and I don't do it, well, maybe I'm not so capable, and then that can undermine. So even though the best intent was there, it's big on how people interpret mm. themselves getting back into the real world, real world following those sort of events. Right. And the second thing I was thinking is that when you talk about optimism versus pessimism, for example, so I reflect on my own life. And for me, it's very situational. It's very domain specific. Like I was a total pessimist crawling into my crawl space to fix this this float switch on, mm -hmm. a, on a, you know, because I don't do that. But if I'm going to go play ultimate Frisbee or coach someone, I probably have I'm probably like optimistic to the point of unreality, even like I think I'm so great right? at <laughs> these things. Yeah. Um, and I see this a ton with clients who uh, around executive function where in their professional lives, they plan, they project manage, they have Gantt charts, they have contingency models, mm -hmm. they learn from experience and, and adjust and adapt. And the thought of doing that around their health behaviors, around their binging, around not exercising is so totally foreign to them that it literally comes as a revelation that they could apply, you know, OKRs their or, or KPIs from the business world into their personal mm -hmm. lives and behaviors. So w what's what's the relationship between these, you know, supposedly persistent traits and the fact that we're all, you know, hot messes and different we're completely different in different situations. I know it's a, it's a great point. So it definitely brings up trait versus state situations. Um, and so I could have trait. I could be confident no matter what I did. And there are people who are, who are that way. Um, I could be trait optimists no matter what from ultimate Frisbee it's uh, changing a float. So it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. The glass is always half full. Uh, but it does tend to vary a lot by the situation, the context, uh, the, the state that I'm in, the emotional situation. Man, what happened yesterday? And now this is happening. And yeah, I'm normally an optimist, but for whatever reason. And so um, there, there were probably reasons, for example, that you were more pessimistic about the float switch than you were with other things. And maybe that was confidence in your own abilities because of the history and past successes and uh, the novelty of any activity um, can, can alter our own or, or kind of own uh, confidence and, and access to certain abilities that we might have or not even know we have that we utilize in other areas. This particular thing uh, that you bring up is, is good because this is one thing that got me getting, uh, diving deeper into value. Uh, because the, the question I would ask and have asked people in the past is, why are you so diligent, for example, with your work, but you're not diligent with your health or you're not diligent with washing dishes or, mm. or, or cleaning the house or washing your clothes? Like, why? Why aren't you just diligent, right? Um, and, and we talk a lot about virtue and, and, and a lot of our stuff. And so we, we talk about that. We talk about uh, maintaining virtue in all aspects of our lives. Um, and so one response you might get is, well, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm diligent at work because I got to get paid. I got to I have these pressures I have. Right. It's not that I necessarily enjoy it, but maybe that is it. Maybe it's just I enjoy that. So it's easier to be diligent with things that we enjoy and that we want the outcomes from. But it's not as easy to be diligent with the things that we just don't inherently enjoy. And so but or, or we want something out of it. So um 
talking about personal examples, you know, I, I don't like washing clothes or hanging up clothes in particular. So uh, as odd as this is, I just have a clean pile of clothes and I just get the clothes when I need them. The certain clothes I hang up, but I try to minimize the amount of clothes I hang up because I absolutely just despise it. Um, and I don't know why I just don't, it's just boring. I try to listen to podcasts and things while I'm doing it and that eases it a little bit, but there's no repercussions of me having a, you know what I mean? There's no, if I have a clean pile and I don't hang them up, there's no <laughs> negative outcomes from that. There's no positive. It's just, it's only positive. And so with everybody making these decisional balance of these weighing these costs and benefits, but there are so many things we do in life from changing diapers to exercise to whatever that because there is a value there inherently, even if I don't do it because I inherently enjoy it mm. because of the value of the behavior and or the outcome, um, it if it then requires diligence, I'm much more prone to do that. And so uh, to reiterate, that's one reason I really started diving into value based mm. decision making and how that approaches uh, motivation. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about that, because you've done a lot of work with uh, around spirituality and re specifically religion and how that can inform um, health behaviors. Because, you know, what I have found is that both, you know, when we talked about the heaven and hell approach, not literally around religious, but just, you know, conceptually, like I'm going to do this because I want the good thing in the future or because I want to avoid the bad thing in the future. Both of those are future. And there, mm -hmm. so there, and and what I found is that values is always present. So if I'm proud of myself for hanging the laundry, for example, even if I don't enjoy it, I can enjoy the feeling of self-esteem of uh, of being in concert with my values. Tell me what 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 what. Um, and the other thing is, I was thinking I've thought about religion for a long time because when I went to college, um, I was sort of. Jewish kosher, but I joined a mm -hmm. Jewish eating club, a kosher eating club. And, you know, at that point became like totally kosher. And like mm -hmm. I never struggled to like not eat shrimp or ham and like being, you know, deciding that I was going to keep kosher made eating really easy in a way that not eating sugar or not eating things that weren't. And I, and I, and I didn't even believe I didn't believe in stuff. It wasn't that I was doing mm -hmm. it because I thought I was going to get struck down by a lightning bolt. Mm -hmm. It was just like cultural or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, wh um, what have you learned about the about how religion can help us be, behave in, in places where otherwise it would be hard? Yeah, it's, it's great. And um, I, I, too, because of personal um, kind of perspectives, as well as here in Texas, sort of the Judeo-Christian, uh, you know, nearly 80 percent of people self-report a Christian faith, for example, in the state and nearly 90 percent uh, will say that it's important, very important aspect or guide for their daily life decisions. And so the thing that you hit on that um, there, there's largely two aspects. One, it's near impossible to measure spirituality so, to say uh, and in the Christian faith, that would be referring to this um, spiritual connection uh, w with God, for example. That's extremely hard to measure. So most of the, the folks in this area measure religiosity, prayer, going to church services, uh, mass, things like that, um, helping others, sharing one's faith as measures of religiosity. That gets a little complicated because you hit on a point about 
uh, doing it from from a cultural standpoint. And clearly, uh, we can do religious behaviors because that's just what we're supposed to do. And there's really not a spiritual level to it. It's just what we do. I still think that's a powerful uh, notion for people in behavior. Um, and so, for example, um, I talk about the and wrote an article not too long ago uh, on the church cigarette. Um, and in the South, for example, uh, before really the early 80s, uh, but for sure in the 50s, 60s, pastors would smoke while they preached. Um, and then people would be in the church service smoking. Uh, and the church culture, so to speak, and the secular culture, so to speak, were the same as it was this. And as you know, when we look back at the history of smoking and doctors prescribing it to clear your lungs out and uh, for, for pregnancy and they're uh, flavoring cigarettes for kids. It, it was just Flint, Fred Flintstone smoked, uh, Andy Griffith, right? You had all this sort of feedback that it wasn't a bad thing, even though we had all the data underlying the, showing that clearly it was. And then when the Surgeon General in the, in the 60s came out and started talking about it, it really wasn't until the mid 80s where largely there were some religious groups who were uh, aware of this, but largely our, our more dominant in the South, Protestant religious groups started jumping on board. Um, and so, in other words, they, it, it became more than just a cultural religious thing at that point, because what they were claiming in the Christian faith, for those who are familiar, there is a, a, a paradigm of view, a religious view, that the body is God's temple to be honored and treated as holy, as separate, as to be protected at all costs. And um, they had already had certain health behaviors, such as not drinking at all alcohol or drinking not, not drinking too much alcohol, uh, as, no, that's not just a religious thing, that's a spiritual thing, and it's a part of what we believe. Mm-hmm. Well, then, after the mid-'80s and beyond, you start seeing smoking, Avoiding smoking falling into, again, not just a religious thing. Now, you would clearly, those who adopt it as a religious thing, they wouldn't smoke at church, but if they were by themselves somewhere, they would smoke, right? So it wasn't a spiritual thing from them, it was a religious thing. Yeah. So what Both was, were powerful. What was the mechanism by which that shifted? Because now I'm thinking about, you know, in your paper, um, looking at religion and this, this survey of people who call themselves religious, who said that, you know, that kind of, rated various activities as, you know, it's totally cool or totally uncool Um, and, you know, drinking and alcohol, alcohol and cigarette use were way up there. Piercings and tattoos were way down, like nobody really cared. But then, like, um, you know, eating unhealthy was seen as not so cool, but every church buffet had the, you know, the pastors would come to your house and would expect the big meal. So what what was the mechanism by which the pa- like the churches stopped smoking? Was it the pastors stopped? Was it that kids would come and they'd been taught in school? This is bad. And they like, is there is there something we can learn from that to apply to, to church culture today to get people to eat healthier? I, I hope so. Uh, that's one thing that I'm investigating is, is historically looking back at events like this and trying to discern so that the quick answer is I, d- I don't know yet. Um, one, I think you hit the nail on the head. You clearly can apply um, cultural social pressure to this. You can apply leadership. You know, when, when leadership does something like the pastor and enacts things, and, and um, that, that makes a lot of sense that would promote this change. 
it still doesn't necessarily get us to why the pastor did it, right? Was it was it internal, spiritual in nature? So what I'm looking at now, my hypothesis or theory now is is uh, the process of internalization. And so we mentioned some theoretical approaches early on in this conversation. Um, and when you internalize you're into your own identity value system, and you made the example earlier uh, with your own values and, and self-esteem, et cetera, but internalization, if I take any behavior and then I internalize that into my identity and my own values, the increase in self-determination, autonomy, et cetera, and the motivation to do that also increases. However, what I found had not been looked at, the only thing that was looked like, so Richard Ryan did a study, and I talked to him about this, and I think it was published in 1993, where he looked at religious internalization. But what he did was he looked at uh, religious behaviors like prayer, going to church, reading the Bible, and he developed a scale to assess how internalized are those religious behaviors into your overall identity. Mm. And he found that those who were more, it was more identified, right? It was more internalized, they had much better mental health outcomes. Those that were doing it for like religious regions, reasons, more introjected type motivation for those who are familiar with that. I'm doing it to avoid guilt or shame. I'm doing it because I have to. They had poor mental health outcomes. And so I became fascinated with that. And I talked to him about it because I was curious if talking about process, I was curious is if can we internalize a health behavior, not necessarily into our overall identity, but to our spiritual paradigm, to our religious values. And so now what I've done is I've developed a scale that's helping us assess that and, and that we're validating that now that does kind of what you said earlier. It How central are these following behaviors to your Christian values? Um, and how, how and, and those health behaviors that tend to be higher on that list, my theory, my hypothesis is that it's going to be much easier for them to be doing those behavior and they're going to be more successful. What that does is that creates a bridge now. How do we then increase the probability that somebody will internalize, let's say they've already internalized avoiding smoking tobacco or avoiding too much alcohol. Well, how do we get them to internalize avoiding too much uh, unhealthy food, for example. Mm -hmm. And I have some ideas on that, but that's sort of our next phase. Right. I, I, I had a thought when I was reading that, that study, which I, I believe was you asked them, tell, you know, answer these questions about your religiosity, answer these questions about how you, you know, are these cool or uncool behaviors and tell us what you ate. Right. So I was thinking like um, a friend of mine, Dan Ariely, has done a lot of studies on honesty and dishonesty and under what conditions you can get people to become more honest. And he found like he, have, he would have these experiments where it was very easy for the for the participants to lie to make more money. But mm -hmm. when he had them put their hand on a Bible and promise to be honest, this cheating completely went away, even among people who were self um, described atheists. And, he said, mm -hmm. and so what I, I was really curious about for your study is if you ask people like how important, how you know, your, is your body a temple? And do you think that eating unhealthy food is is not cool based on that, like to then follow them for the next couple of weeks and see what kind of different choices they make just by that self description? Yeah, it's fascinating um, study. Uh, we, we have not followed over time yet. 
uh, right now, because we're so much on the psychological aspect of the self-internalization, everything we do comparative to behavior is cross-sectional. So their beliefs now and their behavior now. So what we find is that disconnect, though. Generally speaking, we find, and again, this is in the South, Protestant, Christian religion, uh, faith. We, we find that, generally speaking, they do see their body as God's temple. They do see unhealthy eating as bad, as unhealthy, as detrimental to the body, but not necessarily damaging to God's temple. So there's a disconnect there. And because of that, they, they also tend to have unhealthier behavior. The little bit of a sample that we have that does start internalizing that, their behavior is also, again, cross-sectionally speaking, tends to be better. So um, that's why we, we believe that if, if you can overcome the disconnect that many people have. And so also to that point, I, I don't know, the honesty-dishonesty thing is interesting. Clearly that happens with, with any sort of research, and so you just expect that as a limitation. But um, so to me, like, so with diet, right? So, so let's say I'm talking to somebody, I'll give an example, someone in the Christian faith, and I had a group of pastors and I was talking to about this. So, um, the smoking and I asked them, so why is smoking bad? And they'll tell you because it destroys God's temple. That was their belief. Um, and so I said, well, do you know that poor diet? or that smoking is now the second leading risk factor for premature death in the U.S., diet is now the first leading risk factor for premature death. So if you're making the decision based on smoking, then shouldn't you make it on diet? And if you ask them that, generally the response is, I just, I didn't know. I mean, I knew diet was bad, poor diet was bad. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know. And so part of me believes that it's not an honest, dishonest thing. It's just they didn't know. And then to your point earlier, I think you have to consider the level of it does impact how they do business. And this is one of the things we face at the county level working with churches is that um, they get it. They understand that they should be eating healthier, but they also use, in some cases, um, health, unhealthy food to recruit people, so to speak, and to get people to come to church. So they, they don't have alternatives. And so th then there's the personal level where we always try to dismiss things that counter uh, our, our sort of beliefs. But again, I believe that there's a deeper theological aspect to all this within the Christian faith that we don't hear about as much because it's clearly much harder to do research on these sort of theologically based things. But that's where we're going is uh, I think there's deeper theological things here that not only help us understand the disconnect, uh, but also will give us the uh, data that we need to then intervene properly based on their current, in this case, Christian worldview and paradigm. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So I got I got to jump off in a couple of minutes, but I, I want to this 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 conversation has been fantastic for me. I know my coaches and coach trainees are going to love it. Good. Um, I'm thinking about the broader audience of people who want to be healthier. Um, do you have what do you tell yourself? Do you have some advice like if you struggle with any health behaviors like how all your your vast research knowledge? How, do, how does that play out in your life? What are, what are your strategies for, for acting in a healthy way? Yeah, it's a great question. And you almost it's like the whole can you bottle what people do who are successful and then give that bottle to those who, who are not? Um, for me, um, it does come down to I am 
there's, there's a term called transcendence that I use a lot, not the word per se, but the process. And that is this idea, and some people again define it a little bit differently, but it's generally the idea that you transcend any particular situation to reconnect with why in the world you're going to do it. Like the bigger why, the bigger value, the bigger... It's extremely hard for me to break away from the computer when I'm working uh, to go work out. Um, it's daily. It's not necessarily easy for me. I, I And we can talk about this later. I'm not necessarily sold fully on, on like habit formation when it comes to... Uh, I like routines, but anyway, automaticity, like subconscious stuff is fascinating and it can be helpful clearly. But every day for me is a conscious act. Like, I might use the cue, right? The alarm goes off or I might set those. But at that moment, I'm like, yeah, but I need to work some more. I'm running, like, I need to get this done. I need to, but then I engage this conversation, right? With yourself, the whole devil angel on the shoulder is like, no, but your body's God's temple. This is what you do, right? This is, and so to me, that that particular concept, that ability, and it's trainable, the ability to engage with yourself in a way that then encourages yourself to go it. So I am big on um, uh, that those those self-regulatory abilities is the general umbrella. So that's what I would tell people is find the where in the world you're doing it and engage that often uh, so that you can see every single little act relative to the overall. And maybe it is a goal. And, and, and those things change, and people got to be okay with that, too. I would say right now it might be uh, with summer closing down, maybe it's some event that's happening a few months from now. You Use that. Remind yourself of that. Connect with that. Once that event happens, then there's something else that's, that's going to come up. There are more consistent values, clearly, and motivators uh, that, that we can utilize as well. Uh, maybe I want, I, just, I want to do that for, for my wife. I want to do it for um, my, my kids. I want them to see me go work out every day. Um, but I do have to connect with that often, mm-hmm. uh, and it might change from moment to moment. So in other words, today it might be after this conversation, when I go work out, it's more about, um, me not working out yesterday. Right. But tomorrow it might, I go work out because no, I believe my body is in need. Uh, or the next day it might be because I just feel a little cruddy, right? I just need to go. I need to go one day. It's mental, right? So it's always connecting with those reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of transcendence. That's really fascinating. I, I wish we had more time. Maybe I'll, I can convince you to come back on and talk some more. But okay. this idea, like, there's so much around the habit world now that just it almost feels like what we got to do is replace the bad habits with good habits, and then you're going to be an auto- automaton doing the right things, right? Because our brains are so overwhelmed, we can't trust them to make good decisions. And you're really yeah. saying. Why the heck not? Why? Why don't we aspire to be the sort of people who can be intentional and do the right thing at the same time? Yeah, I am a big proponent of yes, yeah, self-regulation. That's it's active now. Clearly, in, in environments that are that are healthier, and the healthy options are easier, uh, that it doesn't require as much self-regulation. Uh, when we have situations that have that cue us into healthier behavior, I always ask people, how easy is it for you to eat unhealthy in your house? And if they say, well, it's pretty easy, well, that's going to it's just going to make it harder on yourself. Right. So there, there are ways that we can set up an environment, make self-regulation easy. But, yeah, I'm a proponent that you're definitely engaging these things uh, and habit. The automatic processes can help. But, um, yeah, 
let's be intentional about what we're doing and engage and train the abilities that we need uh, to be successful. Awesome. Mark Ferris, thank you so much. Um, people can find you. The best place is fitnesspudding.com. Is that yeah, right, right now, fitnesspudding.com. And then, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, I'm working toward um, changemaintain.com, and they can contact me there. In particular, if um, organizations, coaches, um, uh, healthcare providers, healthcare systems want to engage training, as, as we've talked about today, that's more specialized and congruent to what their goals and visions are and what they need, um, then that would be a service for them as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I've learned a lot and I'm sure it's going to be real helpful for lots of people who are out there changing themselves Good. and changing the world. So thank Good. you. Thank you again. You're welcome. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye bye. All right. I hope you learned as much as I did. Um, I'm wondering maybe the question to ask yourself now is what is one actionable item? What's one insight that I got from this conversation that I can take action on in my own life? If you enjoyed this episode of Plant Yourself and you'd like to support the mission of the show, there's so many ways to do it. You can subscribe. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this right now. You can share it on social media or you can actually put your money where your ears are and become a sustaining patron of the show. And you can do that one time or through an ongoing monthly contribution. Find us at plantyourself.com slash gift plantyourself.com slash gift. If you want to check out the show notes for today's show with links to what we talked about, you can find that at plantyourself.com slash 425. All right. So in garden news, uh, corn, uh, the raccoons are leaving us the gross ones. We've each of us, Mia and I have each had about one good ear. The rest, either the raccoons got or they uh, they left the rest for us. Greens are all done, so we're getting ready to plant new greens. We got a lot of bean plants that are just producing flowers still. So it's looking like we, we're either going to have to rip those out to make room for fall planting or count on a, a much later harvest than I'm used to. I'm not sure exactly why that's going on. Um, found um, another downed tree in the in the back forty which uh, was cut up by chainsaw, which I'm now in the process of hauling up to the woodshed and splitting with a big old uh, Fiskars woodcutting axe. I feel um, very manly, very manly indeed. And I wear steel toed boots so that uh, <laughs> in case I slip in running news, um, I've been getting in my my nine minute mile every single day since I had that conversation with Sarah Bofanger a couple weeks ago. Proud of myself there. Over the weekend, I did uh, over nine miles on Sunday. And this morning, just very easy recovery run from chopping wood, hauling wood, but managed to get seven in. So feeling feeling pretty good and um, got some new running hats, bright yellow, so that if anybody hits me, at least it will have been on purpose, and not an accident. All right, let's go. Thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use Sabali Don, the Dance of Peace, as the theme music for his for this show. Find out more about Will and listen to more of his beautiful cover music at willridenour.com. So I got a, a very nice um, thank you from one of the patrons who um, last week I only read the last I read the last 12 or 13 names. So I'm going to I'm going to do that. But I'm also going to go through and read another a random 12 or 13. 
um, rather than taking up everybody's time with the with the whole list. So let's start with Jeanette Benham, Gil Lasser, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Doro Navizov, Gioan Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Thunderberg, Misha Rosen, Mike, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, and Aviva Lael. Hope you guys are all doing great. And back down to the very the latest, we've got Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Zidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast and, of course, for everybody else whose name I didn't say today. All of you, love you all. Thank you so much. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends.